Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We're really excited about today's show. We are going to be talking about what civil rights advocates can do to take back the courts. We need a progressive federal judiciary that will protect the rights of LGBT people, our democracy, the rights of women, and other vulnerable minorities. We are going to start by talking with Chris Kang, Chief Counsel for Demand Justice and former Chief Counsel to President Obama about the Supreme Court and how the fight for progressive constitutional change depends on citizen activism. Then we'll talk with John Michaels, a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, about his recent piece for Shall Take Care blog, Advancing a Left Liberal Jurisprudence. Finally, we'll speak with the Brennan Center's Deputy Director of Democracy Programs, Alicia Bannon, about how civil rights advocates can take a new look at state courts as an alternative to federal courts for upholding liberty and equality. Let's dig in. I'm excited to be joined by Chris Kang. Chris served in the White House Counsel's Office for more than four years and was in charge of the selection, vetting, and confirmation of President Obama's judicial nominees. Chris now serves as Chief Counsel to Demand Justice, the progressive group that led the anti-Kavanaugh fight and is working on building activism around the courts going forward. Uh, Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for joining me. So I wanted to first ask you about, um, you know, the magnitude of the threat that this new extreme five justice majority poses to civil rights, health care, voting rights, the environment and reproductive justice, all the issues that people who value a progressive constitution and vulnerable communities really care about. Yeah, I think that's a great question as we think about the legacy that Justice Kennedy left behind and how he'll be replaced with a far more conservative justice in Justice Kavanaugh. I think that there's certainly on some issues on LGBT equality, um, in some respect with reproductive rights, you know, there's no question that Justice Kennedy was a more moderate, if not actually progressive or good justice. Um, sometimes I think we also have to recognize that he wasn't always good. He also was on the wrong side of Citizens United and Shelby County versus Holder and the Affordable Care Act. Um, but even so, even with that sort of mixed record, there's no question that Brett Kavanaugh is going to move this court so far to the right. Any potential gains or potential hope we had uh, with respect to some issues and Justice Kennedy, I think, is thrown out the window. And I think that the threats, especially when you have uh, an administration of the Trump administration that's being so aggressive in pursuing policies that attack women, people of color, LGBTQ, Americans, um, immigrants, and all down the line, I think there's no question that the threat incoming from the administration is more severe and the potential of a court that's going to rubber stamp it is much higher. And how fast do you think these changes are going to happen? I mean, is this court going to be aggressive when it comes to approaching these issues and, and gutting some of the some of the protections that we have, um, or are they going to be incremental? How do what should we expect? I think in some cases they're going to be incremental. Uh, they're going to be incremental where they can. I think that 
effectively they will overturn Roe versus Wade uh, and access to abortion, but I don't think they're going to do it overnight. I think it'll be piece by piece. Um, but part of it will also depend on the cases they get. And there are already a lot of states uh, pursuing very aggressive and currently unconstitutional laws with respect to limiting the access to abortion. Um, you also have this case pending in Texas District Court right now challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act and potentially ripping away health care for people with pre-existing conditions, that's going to make its way up to the Supreme Court in all likelihood. Um, and so in some cases, the Supreme Court may not have a choice to do it by incrementally or, or more swiftly. And I think we'll see uh, which way the court ends up going. But my guess is that there's going to be dramatic changes from the court or through the court um, as soon as this term. So let's talk about Kavanaugh. Um, with his confirmation, so many people feel that women, all survivors of sexual assault, were told that they don't matter. Um, for all of us who believe Christine Blasey Ford, for all survivors and those who believe them, who love them, how do we move on now? How do we, you know, look to the Supreme Court and, um, you know, trust the decisions that they're handing down? Did the Supreme Court lose its legitimacy? And how do we get it back, if so? So um, there are a lot of great questions in there. I think that, that part of the sort of how to move on is to recognize that even though Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed, sort of setting aside his ultra-conservative record and the sham process throughout the considered his nomination, and then in the face of Credible sexual assault allegations. I think even though he was confirmed, uh, I think the country's changing. I think that Dr. Blasey Ford coming forward changes that conversation, changes the way that a lot of people think about sexual assault, talk about sexual assault, um, understand the prevalence and sort of what goes into it. And so I think part of it is encompassed on all of us um, who believe sexual assault survivors to continue to vocally believe them and support them and move that conversation forward in a way that sort of it's a turning point more than national dialogue than it is sort of the outcome of this nomination. Um, unfortunately, though, that said, I don't think that we're going to be able to look to the Supreme Court itself to, to help save us with respect to the illegitimacy of Kavanaugh's confirmation, him sitting on the Supreme Court, and of the court itself. I think that um, there were so many aspects of how the Supreme Court has become more illegitimate, starting with the theft of the seat by Republicans when Justice Scalia passed away, and then they lowered the threshold so that they could push Justice Gorsuch onto the court. And now they've put in Justice Kavanaugh again with the sham process in the face of credible sexual assault allegations. And really, I think the thing that was most damaging, perhaps, to the credibility of the court was his testimony in that second hearing with Dr. Blasey Ford, where he showed a complete lack of temperament. Um, and it wasn't just spouting conspiracy theories like when he said it was all done uh, as revenge on behalf of the Clintons, um, which I thought was astounding in and of itself. But the real line that stuck with me and I think is going to stick with me and should stick with all of us who care about the court is when he said what goes around comes around. And I think that every time there's a 5-4 decision that rubber stamps something that this Trump administration is doing that might be striking down an Obama-era policy, those words have to continue to ring out that this is the way Judge Kavanaugh looks at the world. He looks at it in very stark political terms, ideological terms, 
not what you would expect from a judge. And I think that it just goes to undermine the, the legitimacy of anything that court does from now on. And as you said, the country is changing. What happens when you've got a populace that's way out of step with their values and what they support versus a, 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 a court that's so far to the right of where the country is? Um, what does that do to its legitimacy? I think we have to start thinking about when you have such an illegitimate court and you recognize um, as you know, sort of how counter-majoritarian it is, that it's putting forward policies that are opposed by an overwhelming majority of the country, and they're not consistent with the Constitution as the majority of us understand it. Um, and think about why it is, how we got here. And I think that at the end of the day, we got here because Republicans demanded power um, above everything else, and they sought to make these policy changes through the courts because they could not make them through Congress. This very idea that they're trying to strike down the ACA again through the courts because they failed time and time again to stop the ACA and that they failed to repeal the ACA. Like, we have to start thinking then as progressives who care about the court, um, in addition to caring about our democracy, what are, what is our recourse now? Um, I think that there should be some attention paid to whether or not Brett Kavanaugh should be impeached for any number of things, including I think time will show that he lied to the Senate um, about his activities under the Bush administration as more of those documents come out. Um, but if not impeachment, then, you know, is court packing out of the question, sort of enlarging the court, not because we're concerned about specific uh, opinions it renders, but because we're concerned about very legitimacy or do you get into a conversation about term limits? I think something more structural is going to have to change, or at least we brought it to this conversation, so that we can really start addressing this core crisis that's confronting the Supreme Court. So let's talk about something that that can move the conversation in a positive, positive direction. What have we achieved out of this confirmation process? Um, whether in terms of excitement around and enthusiasm for changing the court, for um, engaging around the court and its meaning to um, the issues that impact our lives. Have we, have we made any progress forward? I think we've made tremendous progress. And I think that if you look at the way Justice Gorsuch was confirmed and sort of the way the progressives confronted that fight and the way that Senate Democrats fought it and the sort of the, the debate, it was a lot more muted. Um, and I think it was a lot more muted because there's a lot of other things going on at the time um, with the start of the Trump administration. But you look at what happened in the Kavanaugh nomination and almost from the outset, um, even before the sexual assault allegations, he was already the least popular, Kavanaugh was the least popular Supreme Court nominee in decades. And I think the reason for that is because progressives really, for the first time, or certainly for the first time in a long time, understood what was at stake, what was at stake in the Supreme Court generally, in this Justice Kennedy's vacancy in particular, and then just how extreme Judge Kavanaugh's record was, that I think it's really awoken an energy and enthusiasm and an understanding around the courts that's been lacking. And I think that we talk about it, how the right has had a head start on us for decades in terms of understanding and working around the courts. Uh, but that's always going to be true. Right? They started decades before us, so five decades from now, we'll still say they had a decade, you know, several decades head start. But that has to stop being an excuse, and we really have to start making up the ground 
as much as we can, as quickly as we can. And I really do think that the Kavanaugh fight, although ultimately unsuccessful, has really sparked that change in the way we view the courts and hopefully the way we'll, we'll mobilize around them in the future. And so you've kind of started to mention how the threat isn't just to the Supreme Court, it's to the federal courts all up and down, you know, from district court level to the courts of appeals and the um, sacking of Trump judges all up and down the benches. And so I wonder, can you talk about, will that enthusiasm, how do we maintain that enthusiasm to get people to care about the lower federal courts, how they're changing? Can you talk a little bit about how fast they're changing with um, the Senate Judiciary Committee working with the Trump administration to kind of change every single rule to make sure that Trump judges sail through this process um, as fastly as as fast as possible, and that there are few uh, breaks that progressives have to slow this process down. Yeah, it has been remarkable watching Republicans really starting with the Obama administration work to slow down President Obama's nominees and to change the rules and the consideration um, and sort of demand when President Obama sort of would consult with Republican senators. Um, I worked in the White House counsel's office and ran judges, and we would also often, always consult with Republican senators, find out if we could find a consensus nominee. Um, and sometimes the response was simply, no, that's not the person that I would nominate. Um, and that should never be the standard, right? If they want to nominate a judge, they should become president themselves. Um, but they sort of, from small things behind the scenes to bigger obstruction, I think sort of capped with, the obstruction of not allowing Judge Garland to even hear, have a hearing for the Supreme Court. Uh, but overall, in President Obama's last two years, the Senate, Republican Senate, only confirmed two circuit judges in a two-year period. That was the fewest since the 1800s. Um, and then you look at what they've done in this less than two years now, and they've changed every single rule and practice and norm imaginable. They've already confirmed 29 of President Trump's circuit court judges. Um, and there's more to come in the lame duck session. And so the rate at which they're pushing through, it's because Republicans care a lot about the courts, but also they're willing to um, do whatever it takes in terms of the process, whether they're putting more judges on a hearing than usual, whether they're not waiting for the American Bar Association to do its rating, whether they're disregarding that ABA rating when they're not qualified, whether they're not consulting with Democratic home state senators at all. Um, or they're just sort of keeping a call log of how many times did I call Senator Feinstein's office before the president nominated these judges from California for the Ninth Circuit who will not have the senator's home state support. How quickly Mitch McConnell has moved nominees from the floor to a, from a committee vote to a floor vote so that the majority of senators don't have a chance to really scrutinize their records to even now this last month the Senate Judiciary Committee has held hearings while the Senate's in recess. Uh, and so in the month of October, and one, and actually in a two-week period, Senator Grassley held three hearings for five circuit court nominees over the course of three successive Wednesdays. Uh, in the entire 2015-16, he held hearings for five Obama Trump, uh, five Obama circuit nominees. And so you sort of see all of these things are intentional because they're not viewing the fight as ending with the Supreme Court. They're trying to change all of our courts so that they can change the rules and rig the game at every step of the process. 
So the conservatives have the Heritage Foundation, um, the Federalist Society, the Judicial Crisis Network, all of these institutions that are helping move these really conservative justices and judges through the confirmation process. Can you talk a little bit about demand justice and progressive institution and movement building? How do we shape, uh, you know, a winning, uh, a winning argument and, and the institutions that help push a progressive view of the Constitution into the mainstream and judges onto the bench? You know, the, the strength of the progressive movement broadly in the coalition is that we have a lot of different great organizations that have been working on judicial nominations for decades, um, sort of fighting the most extremely conservative ones and pushing for progressive ones to be confirmed. And it's been a very robust, coordinated um, movement. And I think that it's taken great strides, um, especially over the last couple of years. But one of the challenges is that there isn't really an organization that just focuses on um, on our judiciary, on the progressive side, the way that there are organizations like that on the on the conservative side. And I think that what our goal here is to demand justice is to just focus on the courts, sort of 24/7. How can we get more of the progressive activists? And there's been such an amazing and inspiring outpouring of of activism over the last year and a half or two years now, really people exercising their democracy of of engaging and protesting and calling their senators. And sort of our goal or our theory is, you know, these people are calling their senators five times a week. One of those calls has to be about judges. You have to understand that whatever the issue you care about, whether it's the environment or voting rights or labor or LGBTQ equality, whatever it is, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the courts, and so you have to care about them. And some of this is trying to have this sort of ongoing dialogue with progressive activists to make these connections about what the issues they care about are and how the courts impact them. And that's really sort of our our um, our mission statement is to work on making that conversation and that conversion real so that progressives start to show as much enthusiasm around the courts as conservatives do. I was there for the confirmation in D.C., and I got a chance to hear you kind of speak to the crowd of activists who were standing there. Really, you know, there was such enthusiasm around not letting this be a moment of defeat for us, but moving forward. And so I'm certainly hopeful that we can, you know, grab hold of this moment and propel ourselves forward to um, really make achievements uh, and, and build energy around the courts. And so can you give us, um, you know, in closing, a little bit of inspiration? I mean, let's say we're in 2020 and 2021. We have a Democrat in the White House. We have a Democratic Senate. What does it look like when we start to take back the courts, when we start to really confirm judges that – um, share progressive values that look more like the people that they uh, serve. What does that moment look like, and what can we expect? So I think that, as you noted earlier, Democrats don't have a lot of tools in their tool belt to outright stop the Trump administration and their judges, and I think we need to, to recognize that. But at the same time, I think we need to be building up our infrastructure so that two years into the next Democratic president with the Democratic Senate, 
Um, we're looking at, you know, October of that time with 29 circuit court judges confirmed and very progressive ones at that. I think this is a matter of making sure that when we have our chance, we put in the political will to get these nominations through at a high enough priority. And really one of the things we all have to work on is changing the way that Democratic senators look at judges and look at the judiciary in the same way that I think that President Obama did this great job of making a priority on the demographic diversity of our courts and making sure that our judiciary reflects the people it serves, whether it's um, gender or race or sexual orientation, um, that was important. I think the other smaller part of the diversity we saw amongst our judges that we didn't do enough of and the next president really has to put a big priority on is the professional diversity of our judges, that we cannot continue to have the pipeline to become a federal judge be, you know, prosecutors and corporate lawyers, that we have more public defenders, that we have more public interest lawyers, that we have more academics, that these are um, careers that are valuable, not only in and of themselves, but as stepping stones to become a federal federal judges. And I think if we really put our shoulders to the wheel, that these are fights that are worth it, um, politically worth it, and also sort of worth it in terms of having a different conversation amongst, especially amongst appellate judges when they hear court uh, cases on panels. I think we'll start to see the law change. I think we'll see, start to see some more balance. And I think that that is one of the most important conversations that we can be having between now and January 2021 is what does a progressive federal judge look like? And it can't just be about demographics. It also has to be about the professional diversity that we really need to see on our courts. Thank you so much, Chris. I am pleased to be joined by John Michaels, a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, where he teaches and writes about administrative law, national security law, bureaucracy, privatization, and the separation of powers. In your piece for Take Care, you argue that progressives need to be willing to invest significant political capital in judges who are committed to a left-leaning jurisprudence, and as importantly, who are willing to expound their constitutional theories on and off the bench. Then you go on to lay out a four-point strategy of how we can win. But before we get there, let's step back just a bit, and I wonder if you would talk to us about the type of judicial nominee that we would see under a President Obama, and can you contrast that with the type of judicial nominee we've seen under Trump, and even extending back to the Reagan era? Sure. So the seemingly, the Republicans are more focused on creating a uh, judicial movement of uh, uh, through their appointments than at least recent uh, Democrats have. De- um, uh, President Obama, who um, had principled reasons, it seems, for not really wanting to throw a lot of weight into the courts. He believes more in the political process. And, and I think there's there's much to applaud about that, that um, principled position. But it kind of has left the courts a little bit imbalanced. And so um, – uh, he was very conservative uh, uh, in his appointments, particularly to the Court of Appeals. I think um, that some of the district court appointments um, are, I, I would say, are an exception to that, where he made really bold um, of choices of, of young, progressive, diverse, um, uh, uh, now judges, but you know, movement lawyers and scholars, and 
but, you know, largely this is not where the, the uh, administration spent its capital. And when it tried to do so, it, it quickly, um, uh, like testing the waters, and there's folks like Goodwin Liu and Caitlin Halligan um, and Vic, Victoria Nurse. Um, uh, those appointments didn't go anywhere, and uh, the president didn't really push for that. Um, and you can contrast that with Brett Kavanaugh, who, when he was first put on the D.C. circuit, it took three years to get him through. And um, uh, George W. Bush just kept at it, and the Republicans just kept at it. And obviously now it's paying great dividends for um, for the party and for the conservative movement that I think um, uh, would be glad to claim him as one of their own. Okay, let's run through your four-step strategy that you lay out in your Take Care piece. Talk to us about vision and message. We've always been scared of the living constitution. Do progressives embrace it? Do we start over? Why are judges best positioned to articulate this vision and message? Um, so I do think that there's a, the opportunity for someone to do essentially what Justice Breyer tried to do with his book, Act of Liberty. It didn't really catch on. It's not a very, um, you know, it's a very impressive uh, contribution, but it's not something that kind of um, is easily converted into sound bites. Um, the way originalism really can resonate with people, people can kind of spit back what they think it means, um, uh, more or less, with a degree of um, of you know clarity and, and and even degree of you know capturing the essence of it. So so it is um, it is figuring out which of the progressive visions are. Um, uh, are, are ones that make sense and that are, are ones that can be kind of easily digested and then repackaged and reproduced on the pages of, of judicial opinion and when the judges go around the country uh, doing their their talks and their kind of academic talks and their, their public affairs talks and making it clear to people that the originalism isn't the only vision. And I think the more we get into, the more society changes, the more we recognize the, the various kind of um, uh, uh, unspoken privileges that are now being recognized much more clearly, the more it seems as if it's, it's really an untenable project to continue to rely on, on, on the words or the kind of uh, musings of a, a very select group of framers from, from 200 years ago who are, who are white, Christian, uh, uh, property, you know, well-educated. It doesn't really speak to a broader audience in the same way. And I think there's opportunities then to translate these kind of evolving living constitutional interpretations to make it speak to people who say, yeah, I don't really look like those founders. I have nothing in common with those founders. So why am I constantly be told that originalism is the only way to interpret the Constitution? Okay, let's move on to the second part of the strategy that you articulate in your piece, cover and legitimacy. So we've seen recently the Heritage Foundation start a law clerk's indoctrination seminar with federal judicial speakers. As an LGBT litigator, I've been horrified to watch the clout of the anti-LGBT ADF uh, expand with the large number of lawyers and affiliate lawyers that have been appointed and confirmed through the Trump administration. So what do you mean by judges giving cover and legitimacy to the brilliant progressive and civil rights defender orgs? I use the term, I borrow Jack Balkin, a professor at Yale, terms on the wall and off the wall ideas. When judges start talking about things, it's no longer off the wall. Um, even if it's only one justice talking about it, as Justice Thomas for years was pushing certain sets of issues, and before him Justice Rehnquist was pushing certain sets of issues, and over time as the court changes, those ideas do not seem as fringy. 
Um, but my point here is that um, the conservative judges are closely connected to the movement groups who are closely connected to the academics, who are closely connected to the advocacy groups and everything else. And so when judges kind of um, cir circulate in those worlds, uh, they lend credibility to those movements, they lend credibility to those causes, and they're not readily dismissed as outside the mainstream. There seems to be a bit of a bias here, an asymmetry between what we see judges we typically associate with conservatives um, and their comfort with their, 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 for lack of a better term, their base, mm -hmm. and progressive judges, and they're a bit more standoffish with their base. Um, uh, you can, and part of it is because we haven't, uh, uh, you know, the, the judges who are progressives aren't necessarily as representative of the press progressive community um, as we might like. You know, it's very it's very rare for a uh, for like a federal pro, uh, federal public defender to be appointed to the court. It's not rare at all for an assistant U.S. attorney to be appointed to the court. Um, but one thing that we could really see is have judges, and not just judges, go to the annual. Uh, American Constitution Society convention and give a big rallying talk and then disappear, um, but actually go and engage with, um, uh, you know, some more rank and file judges at the federal district court level, at the state courts, at the court of appeals, and engage with the world of ideas, um, uh, speak at schools, even if it's not a, a thing that's going to be, you know, high profile, it's not going to be covered uh, by um, you know, David Savage of the LA Times or by uh, Jess Braven. It's okay. Just go and kind of get into the conversation, lend credibility to those, those inquiries, and then cite it. Because when you cite it, you do confer um, a credibility on it. And that's, so I study um, uh, administrative law. And Justice Thomas has long been pushing the case that, administrative, that the administrative state is unconstitutional. As time goes on, he's getting more and more fellow travelers. Oh, sure. he's, citing, he's citing a Columbia professor who's written a, basically a, a book that, that says the administrative state is unconstitutional. And he cites it, and when he's, and then Justice, I believe Justice Gorsuch cited it when Justice Gorsuch was on the Tenth Circuit. And these ideas are, are really resonant. And like, so in, in, in a lot of academic communities, it's like puzzling that these ideas are getting hold. But they're getting hold in part because of this dynamic relationship between think tanks uh, or among think tanks, judges, and um, conservative academics. And they're able to push out ideas, and those ideas are becoming much more salient um, as opposed to our ideas, which are siloed. Folks in the movement community are, are, are kind of siloed. A lot of their leading lights don't get put on the bench. And um, and folks in the academic community, a lot of our leading lights don't get put on the bench because I guess in both cases the same answer is we're too controversial because we're pushing issues that are not um, are not not already in the discourse of judges who are I guess we would associate with being more progressive, but you know it's really questionable if they're centrist. Okay, so third, you mention the transformative dissent. I think we've seen Justice Sotomayor recently rising to the occasion with her dissents in Masterpiece Cake Shop and the Muslim ban case, but she's hardly a raging liberal. Why do we need transformative dissents, and are our judges ready? Yeah, so I think you identified some of the, the better recent examples. So the model that I, I reference in my my blog post and that that comes to mind for me is William Rehnquist, who was really, you know, he was called the kind of uh, lone dissenter because he, he got on the court 
at the at the very beginning of the Berger era, when there was still a lot of Warren Court holdovers and a lot of Warren Court jurisprudence, and Rehnquist just basically dissented on all the criminal procedure cases and wrote uh, and also cases about private rights of action, um, any number of areas in which. Um, uh, fast forward 10 years later, and you realize that now Rehnquist is part of the, the, or 15 years later, is part of the majority, essentially repackaging those dissents into majority opinions. So, so what's the value of, of, of saying, um, uh, doing something like what Justice Sotomayor has done in the, in, in the Muslim travel ban case is, first of all, you keep, you keep, basically keep the flame going. You keep, you, you, you tell community who, who reads these things, who cares about these things, that, you know, someone's still on the watch, someone's still paying attention to these issues and is not trying to, you know, engender consensus for the sake of consensus. Um, uh, secondly, it sparks ideas. It sparks ideas in young lawyers who will then become senior lawyers and, and then will maybe even become judges themselves and be able to kind of pick, uh, pick up the threads that, that Someone like Sotomayor Ginsburg has been has been uh, leaving for the progressive community and running with it, and I think it, it just it's simply having a kind of a left flank keeps the court honest. Okay, and fourth, you talk about a critical mass. What do you mean by a critical mass? Why have we failed to do that so far, and how do we course correct? Now, the point about the critical mass is once you get a couple of people out there who are pushing strong ideas. And, and, and come from what, what at least today would be considered an unconventional background. Again, like, uh, uh, ACLU lawyer, a uh, public defender, um, uh, and they get on the court, then the, the units of comparisons change, or the, the degree of comparison change, because you're no longer saying, well, this person is, is, is far away from, say, Stephen Breyer, or far away from Merrick Garland. You say this person's right in league with whomever, like I was talking, like a Goodwin Liu or Caitlin Halligan or on the, uh, on the California, another California Supreme Court justice right now, Tino, Tino Quellion. These judges are completely within that realm or some of the district court judges in New York that I think Obama was very successful with. Someone like Ali Nathan or Jesse Berman or Paul Aiken. Those are, those are judges that, um, are, can become the critical mass that when you then point the next generation of, of kind of you know forceful judicial leaders, you can point to you can point to say they're no different from the folks we already have on the court. Well, thank you so much, Professor. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I am so excited to nerd out by talking about state courts next. The courts of all fifty states in the U.S. territories have broad authority to uphold and restrict the rights of LGBT people and other vulnerable groups. And in addition to interpreting the meaning of state laws and constitutional provisions that have tremendous consequences for individual rights, state courts handle more than 95% of all judicial business that most directly impacts people's lives, including nearly all family law cases and all criminal matters. So we are so excited to be talking with Alicia Bannon from the Brennan Center. Alicia is Deputy Director for Program Management at the Brennan Center's Democracy Programs. She leads the Center's Fair Courts work. She's also a dear friend and colleague. How are you, Alicia? Hi, Eric. I am really looking forward to us having the opportunity to dish about state courts together. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Even on this podcast, we've devoted a great deal of time to talking about the U.S. Supreme Court which hears oral argument in fewer than 85 cases every year. State courts, by contrast, 
handle more than 100 million cases every year, including 2,000 constitutional law cases that are decided by state Supreme Courts. Yet the vast majority of research, scholarship, and media attention are all devoted to US, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and the lower federal courts. But with new appointments coming out of the Trump administration, progressive advocates should be looking to state courts to uphold the rights of vulnerable groups. Can you help us understand why state courts matter? Well, Eric, you're exactly right that state courts tend to fly under the radar, both in terms of public conversations and discourse around the courts, as well as among advocates and when people are thinking about, you know, judgeships or even becoming judges. You know, 95% of all cases are filed in state court, and the state high courts are the final word in deciding most questions of state law. And this has huge implications for people's rights and for the legal and political environment in a state. And so just in the past couple of years, you've had state Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court in Kansas require um, that the state spend hundreds of millions of additional dollars on education in that state. You had a court in Pennsylvania require um, that gerrymandered congressional districts be redrawn. You had a court in Massachusetts order state officials not to um, cooperate with ICE detainers. Um, you know, so it's a whole wide area of issues. And just, just um, earlier this month, you had the Washington Supreme Court strike down their state's death penalty. So on a, on a host of issues, these courts are making very important decisions that can really transform um, the legal environment in a state and also, in some circumstances, tee up um, federal litigation as well. We saw that in, in the marriage equality lawsuits, which all started, you know, the earliest of those lawsuits were all filed in state court. That's absolutely right. And even here on this podcast, we've talked about Masterpiece Cake Shop and other discriminatory bakers and uh, wedding photographer cases, and many of those cases uh, are starting in and winding their way through the state court system. But also here at Legal, we do impact litigation, often around LGBT rights for families, same-sex couples, and their non-biological children. Those cases are handled in state court as well. So they're incredibly important. Can you talk a little bit about any races that you're watching um, this year, important races that progressives should be paying attention to, or even governor's races where uh, the governor will have important appointments? I know New York is pretty complicated, um, and you know some judges are elected, some are appointed, and it's often confusing for people who want to get involved. Yep, and I should say New York has probably the most complicated judicial selection system in the country. It kind of makes my head spin, even though I, I spend my, all my time studying these issues. But um, you know, state state supreme court um, for, at the state supreme court level, there are 38 states that use some kind of election for choosing their judges. So that's the most common tool that's used in states across the country. And, um, you know, and unfortunately in recent years, those elections have become highly politicized. In a lot of states, they've attracted millions of dollars in special interest spending. You have these nasty and misleading attack ads. They basically look like any other political contest, which is, you know, not, not always the best thing for, for the state of our judiciary. Um, there are some races that we're watching closely that are already attracting a lot of attention. So, um, one of the most interesting is in North Carolina, where you have um, 
uh, an incumbent um, justice who is a Republican who's being challenged by um, Anita Earls, who is a civil rights leader in that state. Um, it's already attracted um, a, a lot of money. It's so far been the most expensive race that we've seen so far. And, you know, it's a, it's a high-stakes race right now. Um, the North Carolina Supreme Court is four to three um, Democratic-leaning. Um, if, if Anita Earls wins that seat, it'll become five to two Democratic-leaning, which will be, you know, a very kind of strong progressive court. You know, I think, as I said, there's, you know, interest on all sides are paying close attention to this race, and I think we're going to see a lot of money, a lot of attack ads. Uh, you know, now that's already starting. A few cycles back, it was Pennsylvania that held the record, and now their high court has flipped to a progressive majority. Can you give me any other examples of states that you're watching this year? So Michigan and Ohio have races this year. Um, West Virginia, Arkansas are other states that have already attracted a fair bit of attention. Um, one thing that's notable in Arkansas is that um, they had an, an earlier race and now a runoff coming up in November, but in their, their initial race earlier this year, one of the biggest spenders was the Judicial Crisis Network, a name you might also recognize from the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. They were, they were the biggest spender in support of Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation, and that's a group that's also poured millions of dollars into state state judicial elections across the country. So I think it highlights how, you know, interests on the right have not sort of cabined off state courts and federal courts in the way that I think often progressives have. They have a kind of national strategy that's looked at federal courts along with state courts, and they put quite a bit of money into it. Um, looking at on the progressive side, I think we've really only started to see progressives pay more attention to state courts. I think that's reflected in what we saw in Pennsylvania and this year in North Carolina, you know, I do think one, one issue we see is that because of some structural issues with how these races, um, you know, how these races work, you know, to be competitive in these elections requires a tremendous amount of money. And so, you know, it benefits only people that can tap into million-dollar networks and can create real barriers to entry for a lot of progressive candidates. Great. So let's try to connect some of the dots for people because progressives need not only to care about individual races and get candidates to run, but there's also a problem with the way that judges are selected. So the Brennan Center does a lot of research around this area and the dark money that's influencing judicial elections and where it's coming from. Um, but what's really alarming is that this money is actually influencing the outcome in uh, judicial opinions. The most comprehensive empirical studies available show that the flood of money in judicial elections causes judges to issue more pro-business rulings, send more people to jail, and sentence more people to death. I published a report uh, at Lambda Legal showing that elected judges are more likely to rule against LGBT rights claims than their appointed counterparts. Can you explain why progressives should also care about judicial selection reform? Absolutely. So in over the past two decades, we've really seen a flood of money pour into judicial elections, especially um, at the state Supreme Court level. And, you know, usually that money is coming from interests that are regular players in state Supreme Court. So most, if you follow the money, most of it's coming from 
business interests, usually in support of Republican candidates and um, plaintiff side trial lawyers, to a lesser extent unions, they've been the major supporters of candidates on the left. And essentially, you've seen an arms race. So kind of money pours in on both sides. And, you know, what you end up having then is judges who are hearing cases involving people or interests that were major supporters of their campaigns. And, in fact, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that election pressures, fundraising pressures, worries about how a decision is going to play in the next attack ad has an impact on how judges rule in cases. You know, judges, they sentence more harshly in election years. And one thing that I thought was most striking is that a lot of those dynamics disappear when judges are no longer facing a future election. So in states where judges face mandatory retirement ages, they behave differently when they know that they're not going to have to compete in another election, which is, I think, strong support for the really troubling notion that election pressures are, are really impacting how judges are doing their job. And frankly, as somebody that, you know, has observed a lot of judicial elections, you know, I've watched a bunch of the advertisements, I've followed these races really closely, you know, I believe it. There was an election a couple of years ago in Tennessee. We had three sitting justices that were um, you know, there, there was an effort to, to take them out. They were subject to a lot of nasty, you know, big money, um, big money ads taken out against them. And in response, they put out ads touting that they upheld nearly 90% of all death sentences. That was their campaign ad. And I always think about if I were, you know, representing someone um, who was, was, you know, facing the death penalty in that state, and they, and if they won their case, they were going to tip them below 90%. You know, would I really be able to, to say with a straight face that they, they should feel confident that they're going to get a fair, a fair hearing before that court? I think the, the, the rhetoric around criminal justice issues is one of the most worrying trends that we've, we've seen in these elections. They're often the major issue, and, you know, they're frequently the subjects of attack ads. And so I think it does weigh heavily on judges, you know, perhaps subconsciously, but I think there's real support that, that the pressure is there. Yeah, certainly in the LGBT context, we've seen, particularly as the marriage equality cases were being litigated through the state court system, judicial selection, either in retention elections or in judicial elections at the outset, really uh, influence the way that judges are deciding cases. And, of course, we all remember in Iowa where the justices struck down their marriage ban early on, and then three of the justices were voted out by the public in the next retention election, kind of sending a message to judges across the country, rule against us and you're going to be next. So judicial selection really matters when it comes to uh, maintaining a fair and impartial court system that is powerful enough and independent enough to uphold the rights of minorities. Um, can you talk a little bit about the selection systems that you've seen and uh, best practices that you've studied? Well, I think one thing that you're, you're really highlighting in, in your question is the fact that there are a lot of important and important values at stake in judicial selection that sometimes can be intentioned. So, for example, you know, wanting to have public accountability um, can sometimes be in tension with values of judicial independence. And there are questions about how different systems might um, lead to more or less diverse bench as well. So I think there's a lot of concerns that need to be, you know, weighed. And I think that can vary um, to some extent depending on the particular state, the particular demographics of a state, the political environment of a state. 
Um, the Brennan Center just um, came out with a report a few weeks ago specifically looking at judicial selection for state Supreme Courts, so for the highest courts in the state. In New York, um, the, the governor uh, appoints judges to the state high court based on um, input from a judicial nominating commission. And we actually argue that a system somewhat like New York's for, this, for its high court, at least, is a good model for how um, other states should do it as well. So what we suggest for state Supreme Courts, so or for the highest courts in a state, is that judges should be, um, should be vetted by a bipartisan, independent, and diverse judicial nominating commission that should come up with a short list of candidates and have a transparent process, a process where the public can weigh in, a process where citizens, ordinary citizens, can sit on those commissions. And then coming out of that short list, the governor should um, be able to, to pick a judge and make an appointment. One difference that we have with New York's system is that we also argue, though, that judges should then be subject to one lengthy single term, a one-and-done term, at least for the state Supreme Court level, so that you don't have judges worrying about these reselection pressures. It's something that people don't, you know, it seems sort of technical, right? Like, you know, how do judges have one term or multiple terms or life tenure? But it's really important, you know, for all the problems that our federal courts face, one of the things that I think has given them, you know, the, the, the freedom to, you know, at times really be bulwarks of our constitutional rights is the fact that they do enjoy life tenure. You know, when, um, you know, right after, after Brown v. Board of Education, um, you know, all around the country you had, you had signs going up saying impeach Earl Warren. Now, if Earl Warren had been up for election, you know, two years after the decision, we might live in a really different world right now. Okay, let's pivot and talk a little bit about diversity. The U.S. is more diverse than ever, and its state judiciaries are not. This is particularly true for state appellate courts, where white males are overrepresented by nearly double their proportion of the nation's population. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of diversity and what we can do to improve the diversity on the bench? Well, so state courts are lagging behind tremendously. They don't look like the communities they serve on race, gender, professional diversity, um, representation of LBGTQ individuals. You know, on a whole host of areas, our courts don't look like the public that they're supposed to be serving. Um, the good news is that I think this is an area where there's a lot that can be done to um, build more diverse benches in states across the country. Um, and that's true in states that use elections, and that's true that in, in states that use appointment systems. So, you know, in election systems, for example, public financing has been shown time and again to be a really powerful tool to open up elections to a more diverse set of people. You know, it's, it's hard to, especially at for appellate courts where you need to be able to fundraise, you know, sometimes millions of dollars to be competitive, that can be a real barrier for a lot of otherwise very qualified um, candidates, and that can correlate on, particularly on grounds of you know, race, gender, as well as certain professions like public defenders that we might want to see more of in our, in our judiciaries. So reforms like public financing can play, I think, a really vital role in promoting um, greater diversity on the bench. On the appointment side, I think we have to take a lot more advantage of um, judicial nominating commissions, which most states that use appointments um, provide. Uh, they, they vet potential candidates, but they also, in most states, are involved in initial recruitment. And if you think state benches are not diverse, 
state judicial nominating commissions are usually far <laughs> less diverse. You know, so you you see, um, you know, overwhelmingly kind of white male um, nominating commissions. And that's a real hurdle because usually if you're recruiting, you're drawing from your professional networks. And if your professional networks are overwhelmingly white and male, surprise, surprise, those are going to be the people that you're tapping. And when you're reviewing applications, you know, those are probably going to be the experiences that are going to resonate most to you as a reviewer. So just as we benefit from diversity on the bench in terms of bringing different perspectives and, and you know, the, the, the we see tremendous benefits in terms of what comes out of courts when we have greater diversity, I think we'd also see tremendous benefits in having more diversity on those nominating commissions, as well as kind of more thoughtful and deliberate recruiting efforts to make sure that they're getting as wide a set of um, candidates in the first instance as possible. Okay, can you give us a few examples of what attorneys, judges, law students, and advocates can do to improve fair and impartial courts in their state? You know, well, first off, people should be paying attention to, you know, who's running for positions on their courts or who, you know, who's, who, who are being considered by nominating commissions. Get involved in that process early. And, you know, and think about throwing your hat in the ring if you're somebody who is, you, you know, a, a lawyer who has a longstanding practice who, who would be a great judge. You know, I think we need to have more people throwing their hats in the ring. Um, you know, so I think it's everything from that level to, um, you know, creating better voter guides, um, encouraging the adoption of judicial performance evaluations. I think there's a lot you can do in terms of educating voters and making the stakes a lot clearer with respect to the importance of these positions. And then there's also kind of bigger ticket reforms. You know, we talked a little bit about this report that we just put out, which calls for some big structural changes to how states are choosing their judges, you know, moving to a publicly accountable appointment process for the state Supreme Court, adopting a one-and-done term. There's also ways that states can um, make their electoral systems function a lot better, so public financing, strengthening judicial recusal rules, improving disclosure so that you don't have as much dark money pouring into these races. You know, I think if you're, if you're a legislator, if you're a judge, if you're a citizen, if you're a lawyer, I think there's something that everybody can do to really elevate this issue and help us build a judiciary that is, um, you know, that is fair and that the public can be confident is going to be deciding cases, you know, according to the law, not according to special interest dollars, not according to, um, you know, fears of what the next attack ad is going to have. And uh, I do want to remind folks that if you're a legal member, that we also have a judiciary committee. Uh, and our Judiciary Committee oversees the legal screening process that evaluates candidates for judicial office and provides ratings for uh, judges ahead of every election. We also liaise with and promote uh, the advancement of judges who are dedicated to equality and full representation of the LGBTQ community. So we uh, are very involved in this process and we encourage listeners who are attorneys uh, to get involved and uh, to advocates to pay attention to those ratings when they come out. Um, Alicia, you do such tremendous work at the Brennan Center. It's always a pleasure to talk with the expert around state courts, why they matter, and judicial selection reform, and how uh, that influences the types of courts that we have in our states. So thank you for uh, talking with me today. Oh, I could nerd out about you, with, um, about state court judges with you all day, Eric. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening. This and future podcasts can be found on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. And now I'd like to take a moment to remind you that we are announcing Legal's new LGBTQ&A speaker series. The Global Fight for LGBT People and the Freedom to Marry is our first installment. It's Thursday, November 15th, 6 to 8.30 p.m. at Nixon Peabody. The program will include an intimate conversation about world developments in the continuing fight for the freedom to marry, as well as the effort to protect the rights of LGBTQ people across the globe from human rights abuses. Legal is going to be speaking with Evan Wolfson, founder and president of the Freedom to Marry, and Ryan Thorson, a clinical lecturer in international human rights at Yale Law School and researcher at... Legal will speak with Evan Wolfson, founder and president of the Freedom to Marry, and Ryan Thorson, a clinical lecturer in international human rights at Yale Law School and researcher at Human Rights Watch's LGBT rights program. It is free for Legal members, so make sure your membership is current, and it's $50 for non-members. Law students, you are also free, but you gotta join for free. This is seriously going to be a great program, and there's going to be food and drink and networking, all your favorite things. So we hope to see you there.